Chapter thirty nine of the Man in the Iron Mask by Alexander Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Crown and Tiara. Aramis was the first to descend from the carriage. He held the door open for the young man. He saw him place his foot on the mossy ground with a trembling of the whole body and walk round the carriage with an unsteady and almost tottering step. It seemed as if the poor prisoner was unaccustomed to walk on God's earth. It was the 15th of August, about eleven o'clock at night. Thick clouds, portending a tempest, overspread the heavens, and shrouded every light and prospect underneath their heavy folds. The extremities of the avenues were imperceptibly detached from the copse, by a lighter shadow of opaque grey which, upon closer examination, became visible in the midst of the obscurity. But the fragrance which ascended from the grass, fresher and more penetrating than that which exhaled from the trees around him, the warm and balmy air which enveloped him for the first time in many years past, the ineffable enjoyment of liberty in an open country, spoke to the prince in so seductive a language that notwithstanding the preternatural caution, we would almost say dissimulation of his character, of which we have tried to give an idea, he could not restrain his emotion and breathed a sigh of ecstasy. Then, by degrees, he raised his aching head and inhaled the softly scented air as it was wafted in gentle gusts to his uplifted face. Crossing his arms on his chest as if to control this new sensation of delight, he drank in delicious draughts of that mysterious air which interpenetrates at night the loftiest forests. The sky he was contemplating the murmuring waters the universal freshness was not all this reality was not aramis a madman to suppose that he had aught else to dream of in this world those exciting pictures of country life so free from fears and troubles the ocean of happy days that glitters incessantly before all young imaginations are real allurements wherewith to fascinate a poor unhappy prisoner worn out by prison cares, emaciated by the stifling air of the Bastille. It was the picture, it will be remembered, drawn by Aramis, when he offered the thousand pistoles he had with him in the carriage to the prince, and the enchanted Eden which the deserts of Bas Poitou hid from the eyes of the world. Such were the reflections of Aramis as he watched, with an anxiety impossible to describe, the silent progress of the emotions of Philippe, whom he perceived gradually becoming more and more absorbed in his meditations. The young prince was offering up an inward prayer to heaven, to be divinely guided in this trying moment upon which his life or death depended. It was an anxious time for the bishop of Van, who had never before been so perplexed. His iron will, accustomed to overcome all obstacles, never finding itself inferior or vanquished on any occasion to be foiled in so vast a project from not having foreseen the influence which a view of nature in all its luxuriance would have on the human mind aramis overwhelmed by anxiety contemplated with emotion the painful struggle that was taking place in philippe's mind this suspense lasted the whole ten minutes which the young man had requested during this space of time which appeared an eternity, Philip continued gazing with an imploring and sorrowful look toward the heavens. Aramis did not remove the piercing glance he had fixed on Philippe. 
Suddenly the young man bowed his head. His thought returned to the earth. His looks perceptibly hardened, his brow contracted, his mouth assuming an expression of undaunted courage. Again his looks became fixed, but this time they wore a worldly expression, hardened by covetousness, pride, and a strong desire. Aramis's look immediately became as soft as it had been before, gloomy. Philippe, seizing his hand in a quick, agitated manner, exclaimed, lead me to where the crown of france is to be found is this your decision monseigneur asked aramis it is irrevocably so philip did not even deign to reply he gazed earnestly at the bishop as if to ask him if it were possible for a man to waver after having once made up his mind such looks are flashes of the hidden fire that betrays men's character said aramis bowing over philippe's hand you will be great monseigneur i will answer for that let us resume our conversation i wish to discuss two points with you in the first place the dangers or the obstacles we may meet with that point is decided the other is the conditions you intend imposing on me it is your turn to speak monsieur d'herblay the conditions monseigneur doubtless you will not allow so mere a trifle to stop me and you will not do me the injustice to suppose that i think you have no interest in this affair therefore without subterfuge or hesitation tell me the truth i will do so monseigneur once a king when will that be to-morrow evening i mean in the night explain yourself when i shall have asked your highness a question do so i sent your highness a man in my confidence with instructions to deliver some closely written notes carefully drawn up which will thoroughly acquaint your highness with the different persons who compose and will compose your court i perused those notes attentively i know them by heart and understand them pardon me but i may venture to ask that question of a poor abandoned captive of the bastille in a week's time it will not be requisite to further question a mind like yours you will then be in full possession of liberty and power interrogate me then and i will be a scholar representing his lesson to his master we will begin with your family monseigneur my mother anne of austria all her sorrows her painful malady oh i know her i know her your second brother asked aramis bowing to these notes replied the prince you have added portraits so faithfully painted that i am able to recognize the persons whose characters manners and history you have so carefully portrayed monsieur my brother is a fine dark young man with a pale face he does not love his wife henrietta whom i louis the fourteenth loved a little 
and still flirt with even though she made me weep on the day she wished to dismiss mademoiselle de la valliere from her service in disgrace you will have to be careful with regard to the watchfulness of the latter said aramis she is sincerely attached to the actual king the eyes of a woman who loves are not easily deceived she is fair has blue eyes whose affectionate gaze reveals her identity she halts slightly in her gait she writes a letter every day to which i have to send an answer by monsieur de saint-aignan do you know the latter as if i saw him and i know the last verses he composed for me as well as those i composed in answer to his very good do you know your ministers colbert an ugly dark-browed man but intelligent enough his hair covering his forehead a large heavy full head the mortal enemy of monsieur fouquet as for the latter we need not disturb ourselves about him no because necessarily you will not require me to exile him i suppose aramis struck with admiration at the remark said you will become very great monseigneur you see added the prince that i know my lesson by heart and with heaven's assistance and yours afterwards i shall seldom go wrong you have still an awkward pair of eyes to deal with monseigneur yes the captain of the musketeers monsieur d'artagnan your friend yes i can well say my friend he who escorted la valliere to la chaillot he who delivered up monk cooped in an iron box to charles the second he who so faithfully served my mother he to whom the crown of france owes so much that it owes everything do you intend to ask me to exile him also never sire d'artagnan is a man to whom at a certain given time i will undertake to reveal everything but be on your guard with him for if he discovers our plot before it is revealed to him you or i will certainly be killed or taken he is a bold and enterprising man i will think it over now tell me about monsieur fouquet what do you wish to be done with regard to him one moment more i entreat you monseigneur and forgive me if i seem to fail in respect to questioning you further it is your duty to do so nay more than that you are right before we pass to monsieur fouquet i should very much regret forgetting another friend of mine monsieur du vallon the hercules of france you mean oh as far as he is concerned his interests are more than safe no it is not he whom i intended to refer to the comte de la fere then and his son the son of all four of us that poor boy who is dying of love for la valliere whom my brother so disloyally bereft him of be easy on that score i shall know how to rehabilitate his happiness 
tell me only one thing monsieur d'herblay do men when they love forget the treachery that has been shown them can a man ever forgive the woman who has betrayed him is that a french custom or is it one of the laws of the human heart a man who loves deeply as deeply as raoul loves mademoiselle de la valliere finishes by forgetting the fault or crime of the woman he loves but i do not yet know whether raoul will be able to forget i will see after that have you anything further to say about your friend no that is all well then now for monsieur fouquet what do you wish me to do for him to keep him on as surintendant in the capacity in which he has hitherto acted i entreat you be it so but he is the first minister at present not quite so a king ignorant and embarrassed as i shall be will as a matter of course require a first minister of state your majesty will require a friend i have only one and that is yourself you will have many others by and by but none so devoted none so zealous for your glory you shall be my first minister of state not immediately monseigneur for that would give rise to too much suspicion and astonishment monsieur de richelieu the first minister of my grandmother marie de medici was simply bishop of lucan as you are bishop of vannes i perceive that your royal highness has studied my notes to great advantage your amazing perspicacity overpowers me with delight i am perfectly aware that monsieur de richelieu by means of the queen's protection soon became cardinal it would be better said aramis bowing that i should not be appointed first minister until your royal highness has procured my nomination as cardinal you shall be nominated before two months are past monsieur d'herblay but that is a matter of very trifling moment you would not offend me if you were to ask more than that and you would cause me serious regret if you were to limit yourself to that in that case i have something still further to hope for monseigneur speak speak monsieur fouquet will not keep long at the head of affairs he will soon get old he is fond of pleasure consistently i mean with all his labors thanks to the youthfulness he still retains but this protracted youth will disappear at the approach of the first serious annoyance or at the first illness he may experience we will spare him the annoyance because he is an agreeable and noble-hearted man but we cannot save him from ill health so it is determined when you shall have paid all monsieur fouquet's debts and restored the finances to a sound condition monsieur fouquet will be able to remain the sovereign ruler in his little court of poets and painters we shall have made him rich when that has been done and i have become your royal highness's prime minister 
I shall be able to think of my own interests and yours. The young man looked at his interrogator. Monsieur de Richelieu, of whom we were speaking just now, was very much to blame in the fixed idea he had of governing France alone, unaided. He allowed two kings, King Louis the Thirteenth and himself, to be seated on the self-same throne, whilst he might have installed them more conveniently upon two separate and distinct thrones. Upon two thrones? said the young man thoughtfully. In fact, pursued Aramis quietly, a cardinal, prime minister of France, assisted by the favor and by the countenance of his most Christian majesty, the king of France, a cardinal to whom the king, his master, lends the treasures of the state, his army, his council, such a man would be acting with twofold injustice in applying these mighty resources to France alone. Besides, added Aramis, you will not be a king such as your father was, delicate in health, slow in judgment, whom all things wearied. You will be a king governing by your brain and by your sword. You will have in the government of the state no more than you will be able to manage unaided. I should only interfere with you. Besides, our friendship ought never to be, I do not say impaired, but in any degree affected by a secret thought. I shall have given you the throne of France. You will confer on me the throne of St. Peter. Whenever your loyal, firm, and mailed hand should join in ties of intimate association the hand of a pope such as I will be, neither Charles V, who owned two-thirds of the habitable globe, nor Charlemagne, who possessed it entirely, will be able to reach to half your stature. I have no alliances. I have no predilections. I will not throw you into persecutions of heretics, nor will I cast you into the troubled waters of family dissension. I will simply say to you, the whole universe is our own, for me the minds of men, for you their bodies. And as I shall be the first to die, you will have my inheritance. What do you say to my plan, Monseigneur? I say that you render me happy and proud, for no other reason than that of having comprehended you thoroughly. Monsieur d'Herblay, you shall be cardinal, and when cardinal, my prime minister, and then you will point out to me the necessary steps to be taken to secure your election as pope, and I will take them. You can ask what guarantees from me you please. It is useless. Never shall I act except in such a manner that you will be the gainer. I shall never ascend the ladder of fortune, fame, or position until I have first seen you placed upon the round of the ladder immediately above me. I shall always hold myself sufficiently aloof from you to escape incurring your jealousy, sufficiently near to sustain your personal advantage and to watch over your friendship. All the contracts in the world are easily violated because the interests included in them incline more to one side than to another. With us, however, this will never be the case. I have no need of any 
guarantees and so my dear brother will disappear simply we will remove him from his bed by means of a plank which yields to the pressure of the finger having retired to rest a crowned sovereign he will awake a captive alone you will rule from that moment and you will have no interest dearer and better than that of keeping me near you i believe it there is my hand on it monsieur d'herblay allow me to kneel before you sire most respectfully we will embrace each other on the day we shall have upon our temples you the crown i the tiara still embrace me this very day also and be for and towards me more than great more than skilful more than sublime and genius be kind and indulgent be my father aramis was almost overcome as he listened to his voice he fancied he detected in his own heart an emotion hitherto unknown but this impression was speedily removed his father he thought yes his holy father and they resumed their places in the carriage which sped rapidly along the road leading to vaux le vicomte end of chapter thirty nine recording by john van stan savannah georgia